Hello everyone, welcome to Project Kaleidoscope. My name is Megan McNaughton, and today we are going to be talking about the 19th Amendment, women's rights, and intersectional feminism. So if you guys do not know, the 19th Amendment was ratified on August 18th of 1920, so today we are celebrating 100 years of women getting the right to vote. However, more than a dozen states beforehand had already granted millions of women the right to vote, and consequently, after the 19th Amendment was passed, millions of women were still suppressed from the vote. Despite the 15th Amendment, which was passed in 1870, which just allowed both the U.S. and any state from denying the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, it still allowed the right of states to deny the right to vote on the account of gender. And further on down the line, even after the passing of the 19th Amendment, non-white women still didn't have the access to the ballot due to restrictive state and federal laws, such as poll taxes, literacy tests, and ethnic barriers to citizenship. So this included Black women, Latinas, Native American women, and Asian American women. As well, to kind of put this on a little bit further, specifically Black women in the South, because of Jim Crow laws, they were often defrauded by voting registrars, or they were driven away from registration offices under the threat of violence. So today we kind of have a system where you are able to register to vote online. You don't have to go to an office to do it. But back in the day, they actually had to go inside. They had to bring their ID, register, and everything else, which could be very intimidating if there are people who are racist outside dissuading you from voting. And it did dissuade a lot, a lot, a lot of Black women and men from voting in the South. Which is incredibly unfair because there were many BIPOC women who played a very instrumental part in the movement. So notably the faces of the women's suffragette movement are Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who are white women. However, like I said, there were many black and other POC women who did play an instrumental part, but they were erased by their white sisters. You don't really hear about women like Sojourner Truth, Maria Stort, and Frances E.W. Harper, who were major forces in the movement, who didn't only just focus on the rights for women to vote and women's suffrage, but also for universal suffrage. Because they recognize that, of course, that while they are women, they are still Black, and this is an intersection that they need to fight for. Because there's, there's oppression faced on both sides. We can also see how this kind of history has been erased through the Seneca Falls Convention, which was actually the first women's rights convention in the United States. It took place in 1848, and it ultimately launched a movement for equal rights. However, no Black women were invited to the convention, therefore there were no Black women's voices heard there. So while the 19th Amendment is seen as a revolutionary moment in the feminist movement, the fact of the matter is, is this was only a celebration for white middle-class women. Their rights were still prioritized over voting rights for all women. And this included as well the lower class white women and men who could not pass the literacy test to vote. So due to the fact that many black women and many indigenous Asian Americans and Latino women were still unable to vote after the passing of the 19th Amendment, black suffragists and civil rights leader Mary Church Terrell actually asked her white sisters for help. But they responded that the disenfranchisement of black women was a race problem and not a gender problem and was therefore out of reach for the women's rights movement, which is not necessarily true because of course, while she and many others are black, they are also women and they do suffer 
the same but different inequalities. And it's really important to recognize the way that these two play hand in hand together. But back then they didn't really have a term for this, but today we do. And it was coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw. And it is called intersectionality. And intersectionality looks at the different ways in which a person can be oppressed by multiple systems of oppression. So for example, if you are black and a woman, you suffer from racism, but you also suffer from misogyny and the patriarchy. If you are indigenous, a woman, and queer, you suffer from racism, misogyny, and the patriarchy, as well as the suppression of gay rights. There are many different ways that people can be at intersections, of course, but she specifically coined this term to describe the discrimination faced by Black women, and she gave an excellent TED Talk that I highly recommend that everyone watch. But to kind of summarize it, she gave the example of how when a Black woman was going to apply for a job, a job that was employing many Black men and many white women, she was unable to get the job because she was Black and a woman. So while they were basically employing Black men, they would not employ Black women because they were employing white women. And there are other different ways that we can see this throughout our culture and our society today. We can obviously see this in the multiple stereotypes that are created surrounding Black women. We can see this in the many different ways that Black women aren't given the same voice as white women and multiple other ways. So this goes into intersectional feminism, which really takes into account the many different ways that women experience discrimination, which basically means that it puts on a pinnacle the fact that women do not all face the same experience. There are women who have different types of oppression that they are facing, whether it be race, socioeconomic, the oppression of gay rights. There are so many other ways that women can also be oppressed. So intersectional feminism looks at all these women and decides that we all need the same rights, no matter what, because we are all women. This includes trans women, this includes queer women, this includes non-binary, this includes everyone, which is the way it should be, because at the end of the day, we are all fighting for the same thing. And before anyone comes for me, I know there is a lot of stigma surrounding the term feminism or feminist. And many people have kind of taken to this idea of an, in quotes, feminazi, which is not necessarily what feminism is. But people love to kind of put on the idea that feminism is essentially misandry, which is the hatred of men, the abolishment of men, and isn't really for equal rights, but is for superiority. But I will point out that there is such a big trend here going on, guys. Every single time an oppressed person of any group decides to speak up or speak about equal rights, there's always a stigma behind that they are actually wanting more, like superiority or anything else. Very specifically, right now we can look at the Black Lives Matter movement. There are many, many people who believe that Black Lives Matter is definitely trying to get superiority rather than just basic equal rights which is also another really interesting concept because these sentiments really come from people who have not faced these oppressions and have always been on the side of the oppressor and not the oppressed. But in its roots, feminism and being a feminist really just means to be a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes, which is something we should all strive for. 
There is absolutely no reason why women and men should not be able to have the same experiences as one another in terms of social acceptance, in terms of political power, and in terms of economic equality. Because yes, the wage gap does exist. And to kind of throw it out more, while the wage gap does exist between men and women, the wage gap also exists between white women and BIPOC women. So intersectional feminism is a really important thing that we need to strive for. However, when the 19th Amendment was passed, intersectional feminism was not necessarily a thing. So many women still did not have the right to vote or they were persuaded not to vote for different reasons. So women of color did not receive voting rights when white women did, and nor did different groups of women from different races receive the same voting rights at the same time. So to kind of break this down, little history lesson right now, we're going to look at very specifically when certain groups got certain rights. So on June 24th of 1924, Native American women were granted citizenship through the Indian Citizenship Act, and they were therefore able to vote. However, many states still made laws and policies that prohibited Native Americans from voting, and they did not actually receive full voting rights until 1948. So as we can see already, there is a big disparity in terms of when white women were given the vote compared to when Native American women and men were given the vote. Next, we have the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943. And if you guys do not know, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 is really just a long line involved in the history of anti-Asian sentiment. And it essentially prevented Chinese laborers from coming into the United States for a 10 year period. So from 1882 to 1892. However, this kept getting extended and amended in multiple different ways. This was actually the first class and race-based piece of legislature in the United States history. It also excluded Chinese nationals from eligibility for United States citizenship. And the initial version of the act prevented certain kinds of Chinese laborers from entering the United States. So basically, the only people from China who were allowed to immigrate were teachers, merchants, officials, and travelers. However, in 1924, the act was actually amended to prevent all Chinese nationals from immigrating to the United States. And it also prevented citizens of other Asian nations from immigrating to the United States. So these laws were renewed twice and they remained effective until the appeal in 1943, which gave Chinese immigrants the right to vote, including women. However, this did not include the right to vote for other Asian women or other Asian men. So until the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, which gave first-generation Japanese American citizenship and voting rights, many Asian women and Asian men were still unable to have their voices heard in the vote. Of course, this still does not cover all women and all people of color. So in 1964, we had the 24th Amendment, which abolished polling taxes and also the literacy tests that were used to keep black people and poor white people from voting. And this was a monumentous step. This really gave a lot of ammunition to people to actually have their voices heard and actually be able to have the vote. So we finally have the Voting Rights Act in 1965 with its amendments in 1970 and 1975, which strongly prohibited racial discrimination in voting. And finally, many more black women and men were now able to vote. So while this is all beautiful and I wish that we can just end right here, 
Of course, I cannot sway away from reminding us all that voting rights are still under attack and voting rights are still not given equally to every single person in the United States. We have things like voter suppression going on, specifically really in the South, like many different polling places are now closed, which were needed for access to many people. So, you know, you don't have to drive two hours to go to a polling station or have to go out of your neighborhood even to go to a polling station. Things like these are what discourage people from voting. And very specifically right now in the 2020 election, we have a lot of different things going on in terms of the coronavirus, in terms of police brutality, and in terms of voter suppression and vote by mail. And our president, Donald Trump, has kind of put into everyone's mind that if we vote by mail, then there, it's going to be the most fraudulent election in history. Although we have voted by mail forever, and he himself votes by mail. Because of this, there is a lot of things going on in terms of the funding the mail, specifically USPS, and also kind of making sure that people are not going to be able to vote when it comes to November 3rd but we will talk a little bit more on that later. So while the 19th Amendment is merely really just an important milestone in the unfinished fight for equal rights between genders, including trans and non-gender conforming people or women, this first wave of feminism honestly just focused on legal issues and primarily the right to vote, specifically for white middle-class women. So when it comes down to it, we have four or three different waves of feminism. It really just depends on your perspective, but for the sake of this podcast, we will focus on four. So the second wave feminism lasted from 1960s to 1980s, and it focused on issues of equality and discrimination. It wanted more women in positions of leadership in higher education, business and politics. There was a focus on the need for abortion rights, access to birth control, and the freedom of of expression within sexuality. When it comes to third wave feminism, which was the 1990s to essentially the rise of what we can call fourth wave feminism in the 2010s, this challenged the idea that there's a universal female identity and also challenged this overemphasizing of the experience of upper class white women. It challenged stereotypes, norms, media portrayals, also the language that is even used towards women. A lot of this is obviously still seen today. If you guys saw a few weeks back, our congresswoman, AOC, was verbally attacked by another congressman. AOC, however, came up to the stand in Congress and she gave a really empowering speech that focused on the different ways that violence is not only physically towards women, but can also be verbally and how this language needs to be not used because it's demeaning and it also puts women into a certain box and it perpetuates the different stereotypes that men see of women, specifically women in power. Also, the third wave of feminism focused on sex positivity, so really looking into the different ways that women have been suppressed from leading healthy sex lives, from feeling good about their sex lives, and also the different ways that people can slut shame or victim blame certain women when they choose to have a certain, in quotes, lifestyle or when they are sexually liberated. So coming to the fourth wave of feminism, which is objectively the 2010s to now, this kind of piggybacks on all the ideals of the other waves of feminism. As well, we have the Me Too movement, which was incredibly important and a really good way to spread awareness of how different people can experience sexual abuse and harassment within certain industries. This wave also focuses on women empowerment, intersectionality. It is 
anti-misandrous, which basically means that while we have terms like feminazi and this whole idea that women want to be superior, this puts a big pinnacle on the idea that this is not a movement about hating men. This is not a movement about being superior. This is really just a movement for the abolishment of misogyny and the patriarchy. This is a movement for equal rights between men and women and not meant to take anything away from anyone else or to diminish the issues that men face, but to really empower women to speak about the issues that they face. As well, this is a very body positive wave. It is also digitally driven. So that basically means that Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the media, these are different ways that women during this wave of feminism are expressing themselves and expressing the different ways that they are oppressed or they face discrimination in their daily lives. So why is feminism so important? Why are voting rights so important? Well, like I said, today in 2020, we are facing multiple different issues and new ones just seem to kind of pop up every single day. But the big ones that we are facing are the coronavirus, which has killed many, many, many people up to date and is leaving people with lifelong issues that are going to really hinder their health. And it is disproportionately killing BIPOC people and people of lower socioeconomic status. We are also facing issues of police brutality. We've had the protests going on for months now. And justice has not necessarily still been served, so the protests will probably continue to go on for a long time. And we also have the United States president speaking on the 2020 election and how he believes it will be the most fraudulent election in U.S. history because of mail-in ballots. So as we can see, all these issues are interconnected. All of these issues do have a place where they intersect with one another. When we have a president who is perpetuating misogynistic language and also perpetuating misogynistic values and upholding the patriarchy as well as white supremacy, we can see that on the rise there is more and more of a need for intersectional feminism and the need for equality between the sexes. As well, voting rights, while they are protected, there are still so many different ways where they are being suppressed. And very specifically now with the defunding of the USPS and the attacks made on it, there are so many different issues here that will suppress the vote in November if we are not careful and if we do not take action and if we do not vote. Donald Trump was actually recently quoted saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting out and voting. You get out and vote. They voted during World War I and World War II, and they should have had voter ID because the Democrats scammed the system but two of the items are the post office and the $3.5 billion for mail-in voting. Now, if we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money. That means that they can't have universal mail-in voting. So they just can't have it. End quote. Mail-in voting is something that is really necessary right now because of the fact that there are so many different ways in which voting is being suppressed. And to add on top of that, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And to vote in person right now would just not be super ideal. So mail-in ballots are extremely important. And the funding of USPS, which has honestly been under attack for a very long time, it can honestly have an impact on the election. And it also has a severe impact on people who rely on mail-in voting and people who rely on USPS for multiple different things, such as medications, bills, checks, there are so many different ways that the USPS is an extremely important service for every single person in the United States. 
The United States Postal Service is not a business, it is a service, and it should be provided to every single citizen within the United States, and it should be something that is protected and is something that should not be hindered due to the president being scared of what might happen with the voting in the next election. That said, voting rights have had a really long history in the United States, specifically for women and other people who are included in BIPOC, and honestly, anyone who isn't a white man. But just because we have all these different amendments and all these different acts, it doesn't mean that everyone is necessarily given the right to vote freely without any type of suppression or without any type of hindrance from anyone, especially the U.S. government. Some final thoughts I kind of have here are, as you guys are going into the 2020 election, if you are eligible to vote, please vote. And if you are sending it by mail, please know that because of the hindrance from the U.S. government, it will take a lot more time for it to be delivered. So please send in your ballot as early as possible to make sure that your vote counts. If you don't want to actually mail in your ballot, because honestly, I've always voted by mail, but I do not mail in my ballot. I personally take it to a polling station, whichever one is closest to me, and I will drop it into a drop box. So I know and I see for a fact that my ballot has been taken. And as well, as you guys are going through your everyday lives, if you consider yourself a feminist, which I hope you do because every single person should be a feminist, please make sure that your feminism is intersectional. It took way too long for many different women of color and many other different people to receive the voting rights and the equal rights that they deserve. So do not think of your rights as something just for you or just for people who look like you. Everyone deserves the same basic fundamental rights. And that should not be taken away from anyone given their sexuality, their gender, or the color of their skin. Because at the end of the day, all our voices matter. And it's really important that they are heard. That's all for today's episode of Project Kaleidoscope. Please be safe. Please vote or register to vote if you have not yet. And stay tuned for the next episode.